We are continuing this uh, sermon series in uh, the exile or return, as we've articulated several times. Uh, this, uh, this series, it's kind of multifaceted. We started by talking about the whole idea of the covenant and trying to lay a groundwork theologically as to our understanding of covenant from the post-exilic or the exilic and post-exilic literature. And now the last couple of weeks, we've been going through and doing kind of a historical overview. Uh, but I want to go back to this slide one more time. Uh, it's probably the last time you'll see this slide for a while. Uh, but this slide makes a couple of important points. First of all, God has elected the Jewish people. We did not choose ourselves, nor did he choose us because we're great and awesome. He chose us for his own reason. Not because of who we are, but another place it says he chose us because you are the least of all peoples. So in other words, we were the last conceivable choice. We were the kid who was the scrawny kid on the soccer field that no one wanted on the team. And God said, you know what? I'll take you. That was us. Should make us feel humbled, not proud. Too many Jewish people walking around with their noses in the air. We should be humble people. God chose us despite ourselves, all right? But he chose us and he gave us instructions which we have not really fulfilled so well. We transgressed. God had to judge us, to punish us. But, you know, what's interesting is he didn't throw us away. He recommitted himself to us. And as we're going to see in a very brief overview today, he renewed his commitment to us, but he also renewed his expectation for us to keep his covenant. And the covenant, as we talked about, is just the fact that God has chosen us and given us instruction, including what's in the Torah, okay, uh, to guide us in terms of how he expects us to live as his Jewish people. And then the renewal is what consistently comes. We constantly need renewal as his people. I mean, as we say even now, we are still waiting for our people to humble themselves and to turn to the Lord. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, there's a hardness of heart and that God has allowed and even put on us. But the truth of the matter is, if anyone will humble themselves before the Lord, God will save them. And we are a statement. We are a we are a testimony to the fact that God does bring Jewish people to believe in Yeshua. We're here, okay? Then we're a public testimony of that fact. All right, and uh, then the last point is, this is the pattern for us. You're, you became a believer because God grabbed you. God chose you, and God has changed you. And despite your sinfulness, he continues to maintain his commitment to you. Isn't that amazing? That's the amazing truth of the gospel message that we should be thankful for. Now, uh, this is all taking place, all this post-exilic stuff taking place within the Persian Empire, and this is a map of it, but the area of what is the Jewish community is very small, and it's this little tiny speck of land, uh, mostly around the hill country of uh, central Israel today. Now, we are going to see a video. I thought long and hard about this. I really should have done the Chris Farley down by the river video, but... Uh, it would have been better, but uh, I'm, I, I was thinking of Shoshana when I picked this one. Thank you. 
but I picked that one because it's so cute. <clears throat> All right, so training, training an animal. You know, I believe that was a beagle, right? Beagles are impossible to potty train. They really are to housebreak. It's very difficult. I owned a beagle, I know. All right, and all they think about is food. Food, you got food? I need food. More food, not enough food. That's a beagle. All right, training, training. We all need training, all right? I mean, you can't do anything without training. Uh, I was looking for a video. I really, I like videos because they, they kind of add some, some, something different, a little different dimension than me just saying it. But, but what is required in order for there to be training? You need to have somebody who is the trainer and then someone who's the trainee, right? Can you if you're a trainer, if you're a trainer, can you teach a trainee something if they don't want to learn? No. No. Many years ago, or two years ago maybe, uh, my wife who works at Starbucks up in Waukegan, there was a guy there, and they were trying to train him. They were always trying to train him. And they would show him something, and he would say, I know, I know, I know. And then he wouldn't do it right. What's his problem? Arrogance. He lasted, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. It was gone. Everybody hated working with him because he wasn't trainable. Wasn't willing to change and adjust. All right? Training requires both a trainer and a trainee. I was thinking of David back there, of course, was served in the, in the Second Gulf War. And uh, when he joined the Marines, they basically said, hey, good to have you. You can sleep in late, do whatever you want. Eventually, we'll go fight a war, and you can just go on the field in whatever clothes you want, right? No. They basically broke him down and said, this is what you do, because if you don't, you're going to get somebody killed, basically. You know, The discipline required, the, the, the teachability of a military is important. I had, a, I had a cousin, Dan, I had a cousin, Dan, <clears throat> in 1972, at the height of the Vietnam War, he was thrown out of every service. Nobody wanted him. They were drafting everybody, sending him to Vietnam. I mean, it was 70. He got thrown out of every service. Why? He was completely unteachable. Couldn't train him to do nothing. Isn't that terrible? That's not a good thing. You can, you can chuckle a little bit, but that's a problem. That's a real problem. You really want to grow in your understanding of who God is. If you want to move forward in life, if you want to move forward in life, you better be teachable. You must be willing to be trained and taught. You must be willing to adjust and gain understanding from other people around you. Otherwise, you will fail in life. Sometimes that can be difficult. It requires hard decisions and it can be painful sometimes. But it is essential for, for really successful living. And the reason I wanted to use that video is because <clears throat> this last section with these prophets, uh, these are three guys who are speaking hard words to Judah after the exile. Everybody comes back to the land, and there in the land they said, we learned our lesson, we're only going to do what God wants us to do. <laughs> Lasted about a, a day. <laughs> and then they see the women of the land, and they're like, she's pretty cute. Yeah, well, she's not... She's not Jewish. You can't marry her. Well, I'll do it anyway. And then, you know, I think I, I kind of enjoy worshiping God, but I think I'd rather do something else on Shabbat, you know? And so I go off and do something else. And they started breaking all the rules again. They started doing things in opposition to what God expected them to do. So he sends these three individuals, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And they 
basically use harsh, strong words, both of challenge and encouragement, though, to try and get the people moving in the direction that God wants them to go. As I mentioned before, all post-exilic literature points to the full restoration of Israel as God's covenant obeying chosen people and the coming of Israel's Messiah. The whole point of the post-exilic period really is a setup for the coming of the Messiah. But it's also to get our people moving in the direction God wants them to be. Like, hey, stay around. Don't assimilate and disappear. Look forward to the fact that God has a purpose for you that goes beyond this time just right now. I mean, these are very important prophets for us to consider in our day. Where assimilation and loss of identity and, and frankly, just the, the apathy that we so often show as Jewish people to our calling and purpose. Two very important prophets. They're writing approximately 520 to 460 BCE. So from the time of Zerubbabel to just before the time of Nehemiah and, and Ezra. And then the overall theme again to challenge and encourage the Jewish people who returned to the land of Judah after the Babylonian exile. It's just a very basic theme, but as we're going to see, they have pointed words for these individuals. So Haggai, and feel free to take your announcement sheet and you'll see an outline on this. Haggai is the author of Haggai. All right, and uh, he's writing it to a four-month period. I'm probably going to teach on that in each one of these books, uh, whether on a Wednesday night or on a, on a Shabbat morning uh, over the, in the next couple of months. They're just fantastic books for us to consider. If you haven't read them in a while, go read them. Haggai is the author, and he is writing in a four-month period, just a narrow period of time in around 520 B.C. All right, and we know the period of time uh, because it lists the kings who are or the, the, the Persian emperor was reigning at that time. We know exactly when those guys reigned. We have all the historical data. And so he's writing for them. And he, in, in the book of Haggai, the book contains four oracles encouraging the people's, God's people to rebuild the temple. So basically the whole point of Haggai is to rebuild the temple. If you remember from last week, we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. And Zerubbabel gets to the land, they start rebuilding the temple, and there's opposition People said, don't do it. And then they tell the, king, the Persian king, and that Persian king couldn't remember what Cyrus had said earlier. And so they told him that they had to stop. And it says that Haggai and Zechariah come back on the scene. They come on the scene in 520 and say, build the temple. God expected them to build the temple. All right? Very clear. That's the whole point of what Haggai's book really is all about. And so take a look in the text. Turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, page 605, page 605 in the Congregational Tanakh. And very briefly, we're going to survey each of these books. Haggai chapter 1, page 605. So here we see verses 1 and 2, the dating of this. He says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Adonai came to Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, Kohen Gadol. Thus says Adonai Tzavot, this people say the time has not come to the time for the house of Adonai to be rebuilt. All right, so this is the argument. The people are not obeying God's instructions to rebuild the temple. And the characters listed here we know from the book of Ezra. All right, these uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Shealtiel being the son probably of Jehoiakim, the last uh, king to, be, to sit on the throne, rightfully, I would say, uh, over, over uh, Judah. 
and, uh, and Jehozadak, who was of the descent of Sadak, who was high priest during the time of King David. And these two guys are seen as the leaders of the land. Take a look now, move down to uh, verse, well, keep moving. In verse 3 it says, Then the word of Adonai came to Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? But now, thus says Adonai Tzavot, Set your heart on your ways. You sowed much, but bring in little. You eat, but are never satisfied. You drink, but not enough to get filled. You put on clothes, but no one is warm. And whoever earns wages works for a bag full of holes. Thus says Adonai Tzavot, Set your heart on your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. Then I will delight in it, and I will be glorified, says Adonai. You have looked for much, but indeed there is little. What you have brought home, I have blown away. Why is this? It is a declaration of Adonai Tzavot, because my house lies in ruins, while you are running, each to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld dew, and the earth has withheld its yield. For I have called for drought on the land, the hills and the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on mankind and beast, as well as all labor of hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Zehozadak, Cohen, Gadol, and all the remnant of the people heeded the voice of Adonai their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, since Adonai their God had sent him. So the people revered Adonai. That's really the key right there. God commanded the people rebuild. That's what we read right at the beginning of the book of Ezra. Haggai comes on the scene because the people, were a, they stopped building because they got afraid of the emperor. They didn't obey God. They feared man instead of fearing God. That's a common problem we all have, right? Haggai says, start fearing me again, okay? Start fearing God, rebuild. And this is the jab, really. The people became preoccupied with their own comforts, <laughs> all right? He talks about their homes, right? I mean, uh, it talks about paneled houses, all right? That's, that's cedarwood paneling over stone. That's like palatial living in the 5th century BCE. So these people are doing well, but they're not really doing well. Because God is not blessing them. I always say to people, you want God to bless you, you learn to be generous. You want God to bless you, you learn to be generous. If you're not generous, God's not going to bless you, especially when it comes to getting back a portion of what it is that he blesses you with. So these people are commanded to rebuild. The current hardships that they, that they have are because they're not rebuilding. But then take a look at chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20 on page 606. It says, Then the word of Adonai came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Say to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overturn the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overturn the chariot and its riders, so horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day is the declaration of Adonai Tzavot. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. It is a declaration of Adonai, and I will set you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. It is a declaration of Adonai Tzavot. See, what's amazing in this text is that God, God promises them, and I, we can't do the whole thing here, but God basically says, obey me, rebuild this temple, and I'm going to discipline you until you get around to doing what it is you need to do. All right? But then he says, I'm going to bless you. And all of this is because there's something that is coming. We, we mentioned that in the book of Ezra, uh, that Zerubbabel is there and suddenly he disappears. And what happens more than likely is he's called back to uh, the land of Israel. Now, 
Uh, we talked uh, several weeks ago about, about this uh, position called the exilarch. So I'm going to go on the assumption that he served as exilarch, that he called back, got called back in. Maybe his father, Shealtiel, had died. And so the position set up by the Persian king to have a leader over the Jewish people in the Persian land, he needed to go back and, and fulfill that responsibility. What we do know is that for a period of time, there's no Jewish governor over uh, Yehud until Nehemiah comes in around uh, the middle of the 460s or whatever, 450s, all right? But what we do know is if you take a moment and you turn over to Matthew chapter uh, 1, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 12 through 16. Here we have the genealogy of Messiah Yeshua. And this is the genealogy tracing his father, Joseph. And we all understand that his father, Joseph, was not his biological father. All right? He was born in a miraculous way. But he still, the inheritance rights come from the father, uh, whether it's adopted or otherwise. Here we have, beginning in verse 12, after the Babylonian exile, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Jeconiah here is Jehoiakim, who was taken into Babylonian captivity around the age of eight or thereabouts and uh, ultimately uh, was, was raised up and uh, was, uh, he was given a special position which turns into the position of the exilarch. His son Shealtiel, and then Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. So you see the line. Zerubbabel fathered Aviud, Aviud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Sadak, Sadak fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud. By the way, Achim is also a German name. Did you know that? Interesting. Okay. Eliud fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Matanan, Matan, Matan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Miriam, from whom was born Yeshua, who was called the Messiah. One of the things that you're going to see in these post-exilic authors is that they are pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, Shealtiel first pronounced Zerubbabel, become these, these, these figures representing what ultimately will be the Messiah himself. King Messiah Yeshua reigns as the Davidic king of Israel. And he is saying here that through you Zerubbabel there is going to be this amazing reality and later on in the text, when it, we, we're not going to get there because I'm running out of time here, but it talks about how this new temple that is built, that you guys need to build for crying out loud, that the, this temple ultimately will be greater than Solomon's temple. Why? It's not because of Herod the Great who reconfigures it and expands it and does all that. It's because the Messiah himself will come into the temple and will worship there. It's amazing. So... It's a short book, two chapters, but it's, it's an amazing book of encouragement for us. But the fact that God is not done with our people. Take a look at Zechariah. Zechariah, written around, you know, 520. So Zechariah starts the same time as Haggai, challenging the people to rebuild the temple. He continues on writing till 470. And uh, as it says up there, the focus is first on Judah's current situation. Hammering the people. You people, you're not being who you're supposed to be. It's a good challenge for us. Are we really who we're supposed to be? You know? Currently, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Thank God I'm not who I was, but I sure got a ways to go to be where God wants me to be. But then the latter part of the book of Zechariah, because it's a long book, focuses on the future final judgment, both of Israel and the nations. God is going to have to continue to punish our people, even in, as we know in our current day. 
You know, the nation of Israel is not a, it's not a godly... We're not, the state of Israel today is not a godly nation. It's not, all right? Full of, run by people. Benjamin Netanyahu will probably go to jail for corruption, okay, whether you like him or not. He'll only be the third prime minister, I think, out of the last four that uh, either will have been in jail or will, could have been, Sharon should have gone to jail too probably, but he got a stroke. So that's corruption. It's terrible. Big issues in the land of Israel. God is going to have to discipline our people even toward we get, as we get toward the end times. But God is going to judge the nations for what they did to us. God is going to judge the nations for how they treated Israel. I think that's also what we see, as Bob Barrett has pointed out and did a great job in doing this, is the whole sheep and the goat steal, which a lot of times people, I think, in the Christian community completely misunderstand. There he's going to separate those from the nations who were, were nice to Israel and those who weren't. Because God is going to judge the nations, as the book of Zechariah says, in the end, especially for how they deal with us. Doesn't mean that we should gloat in that, but the truth is many of us, especially if you've got families who survived the Holocaust, who wonder, God, where's the justice? Well, justice is a coming, you know, and it even has come even on our own time. But God is not someone who forgets. He can forgive, but there will be judgment for the nations because of what they have done. Zechariah deals with that in his book. I'm just going to briefly mention <clears throat> that uh, here again in the book, in several places, you see that uh, Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, are, are spoken about and, and they're spoken well of. And they become these two individuals personifying the Jewish people, but also playing an important role in the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, there's a section in the middle of chapter 7, uh, which we're not getting, we can't have time to talk about, but it focuses on fasting. Our people started fasting after the destruction of the first temple. All right? So if you're here and you're lax about fasting for Tishbaab, you need to understand that people fasted. And I think that the fasting continued all the way down. I don't know. It doesn't tell us anywhere in literature if it stopped. But we do know that the people continued to fast. And so I think it's our responsibility as well to fast on those fast days on behalf of our people, especially Tishbab. We remember the destruction of all the temples and all that has occurred. All right? But that's referenced here in chapter 7. And then finally, I want us to look at the end of Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah, chapter 14. Verses 1 to 9, page 615, page 615. Verses 1 through 9, it says, Behold, a day of Adonai is coming, when your plunder will be delivered, divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to wage war. The city, the city shall be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women ravished. Half of the city will be exiled, but the remainder of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a huge valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you will flee through my mountain valley because the mountain valley will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee like you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then Adonai, my God, will come, and all the Kedoshim with him. In that day there will be no light, cold, or frost. There will be a day known only to Adonai, neither day nor night. Even in the evening time there will be light. Moreover, in that day living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half toward the eastern sea and half toward the western sea, both in the summer and in the winter. 
Adonai then will be king over all the earth. In that day, Adonai will be Echad. He will be one. And his name, Echad, one. You'll notice a quote there in the Elenu. It's an amazing picture. If you've been to Israel, you know Jerusalem is like right on the heights. One side's the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. The other side, the Dead Sea. Mount of Olives is going to get split. And you know what's interesting is the Kidron Valley right there, which flows all the way down to uh, the Dead Sea. <laughs> so I believe Yeshua the Messiah will return and he's going to come in judgment. He's going to split that mountain. And then it's all these amazing things which are spoken about uh, to renew the land, to renew the land. That's, uh, you know, God, God is planning to bring his judgment, but renewal. He will do it for us and ultimately, frankly, for all the nations. The last book we're going to just mention again briefly, Malachi, wrote around 460. So uh, most scholars would believe before the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. Here, you know, he emphasizes again and again the covenant-keeping nature of God. God is a God who keeps covenant. He keeps it with us as, a, as his people, as his Jewish people, despite ourselves. He keeps it with us individually as followers of Messiah Yeshua, despite ourselves. But a lot of the book, most of the book deals with God's hatred, literally the word hatred, or anger against apathy, moral, and religious decline. Again, this is now, you know, the people have been back on the land for like 60 years or whatever, back from the exile, 70 years. Jeroboam and, and uh, Joshua, the priests, are gone. This is before Ezra comes back on the scene with Nehemiah. And, and this prophet is getting down on the people because they're basically demonstrating apathy. Apathy toward the worship of God as well as falling into moral decline. Some of the apathy has to do with breaking of vows related to sacrifice, moral failure and divorce, and the people are getting cheap and tithing. All right, it's a common problem, all right? Uh, but the idea is, is that they, the people were apathetic toward all that God had called them to do. And so Malachi... Is, is challenging them in this. And he does it pretty forcefully. At the very end of the book, though, I love reading this portion. This is chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19, page 619. It says, For behold, the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace, when all the proud and every evildoer will become stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Adonai of Oat, leaving neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Then you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will trample on the wicked, for they will be ashes. Under the soles of your feet in the day that I am making, says Adonai Tzavot. And this is the key verse. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, whom I commanded at Horeb, statutes and ordinances for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of the children of their fathers else they come and strike the land with utter destruction. Those are heavy words. But it's interesting that these are the last words spoken in the prophetic literature. The next prophet, in essence, is John, who is the guy referenced here. Yochanan the Immerser. He wasn't a Baptist or a Presbyterian. He just immersed people, according to Mikvah, toward repentance. He's referenced here. But along with that is the command for us to recognize that renewal for us as Jewish people is also a renewal of our commitment to God's instructions and to the very identity that God has called us to have. Malachi is saying these things because of all the apathy 
Apathy toward God's instructions, but as we learn later in Ezra and Nehemiah, apathy toward identity. Apathy toward identity. God has a purpose for us, but it's really hard for us to live out that purpose if we're not willing to live by the identity He's called us to live and the instructions that go with it. Now, as we've mentioned several times, how much time do you intentionally make daily to grow your understanding of who God is and of His scriptures? You can't know God's instructions if you don't read the book. <laughs> you need to be reading God's instructions. Uh, I was at my wife, Amy Moore, and Cynthia Meiri are reading through the entire text of the Bible in 90 days. It's quite a task, but they, they're all loving it. I mean, I would, you know, it's an amazing thing. Talk with them about it. But even though it's hard, they're gaining tremendous benefit from it, all right? Read your scriptures. As I said, probably pass, after Passover, we're going to start a, a Wednesday night study. Are you going to make time for it? We'll probably go through one of these books. Are you willing to engage in the text together tomorrow with the brotherhood, understanding the value of chavruta, which is the next thing, Chavruta, learning with other people. But what demands, what is demanded there is, is being willing to be encouraged and to learn from others. Who is it who encourages you to grow in your faith in God and Messiah, Yeshua? Who is it? Who are those individuals that you look to for encouragement? Who do you learn from? It also asks who do you teach. But if you're not willing to learn from anyone, you have nothing to teach. It's like this. You want to be a leader? You better be the best follower you can be. Good leaders are people that really know how to follow people. All right? Dictators are people that don't know how to follow. They just know how to dictate. Good leaders are people that know how to follow. Good learners are people that know how to learn from other people. And then they can be great teachers. All right? Do you have a humble and teachable attitude to learn? Do you have a humble and teachable attitude to learn when those encouraging you to grow in your relationship with God challenge and correct you? That's the, people like to learn from me as long as I'm not telling anything that they don't already agree with. But when I point out to people, you know what? This isn't really a good thing here. Usually that's when people stop listening. All right? It's spiritual leadership. It's true. If you're, if you're a pastor of a church, rabbi of a synagogue, my buddy Rabbi Weil over there in Niles Family, he has the same problem. People only want to learn as long as they're in agreement with the leader. As soon as the leader or whoever the spiritual authority is, is or the teacher, whoever is teaching somebody something they don't want to learn, they suddenly, yeah. Folks, we need to be willing to learn even if it's challenging for us. There are things we have to understand about ourselves and understand about life, and that's the value of having a humble and teachable attitude, especially if we can do it within Chavruta, where there is this understanding of mutual learning. That's really good. The wounds of your friends are always better than the kisses of an enemy. <laughs> the wounds of a friend, the instruction of a friend, the challenge of a friend. You know, every once in a while, my buddy Newman comes to town. There are a few people that can talk to me as bluntly as Newman, but I've known him my whole life. He is one of my best friends, Rabbi Howard Silverman. I need people like that in my life. Who's in your life? Who do you humbly learn from so that you might be used of God to be a teacher of others? Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you've given us prophets to teach us. Help us, God, to to learn. Help us, God, to be aware of apathy, to beware apathy, but to really choose to, to learn and to grow and to develop, uh, and to be more and more who you want us to be. God, I thank you so much for your scripture, and I thank you so much for our salvation and how you have changed our life, lives. Help us, God, to live lives useful for you until our Messiah Yeshua returns. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.